Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And uh, for this podcast um, session, uh, we're going to be um, discussing the final sector, or I should say part, of uh, Part 3 to Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. Part 3 is uh, focused on what's called the creation, being the creation of the canal. What we're going to be discussing on the air uh, for this uh, session, or episode let alone, we're going to be talking about the boom and the bust. Not not in uh, New York State, but the boom and bust of the United States economy in the early years of the canal's um, construction. But we're also going to talk about a, a chronological order from 1820 to early 1824, behind um, the sections that were being um, completed with the Erie Canal. Because remember, folks, the canal itself wasn't completed in just one entire big project. In order for the canal to um, be able to be a successful um, engineering feat, it must be uh, built in phases, kind of like how uh, transportation projects are today. You know, we can't build everything right away at once. It has to be done in, in phases in order to ensure that, um, that the, for one, the project goes as planned, and two, that if, um, if there are issues in halfway in between or from the start, that somehow they can get corrected before it becomes a um, problem to where it could... Um, result in the incident itself perhaps making um, making it on the news um, which sometimes is not always for the better because we have heard of uh, situations many of you all have I'm sure where um, where we always believe that uh, whatever has been accomplished in terms of an engineering feat or just an, a piece of engineering work has gone smoothly only for it to um, turn to disaster I, I remember some years back on the news Watching a um, bridge collapse in Minnesota it was the I-35 bridge in the middle of uh, late afternoon. Literally, uh, one section of the bridge just collapsed, and it turned out that there were uh, structural deficiencies. And engineers had to go in and investigate what caused the structural deficiencies. And of course, they found the found what those causes were. But they did build a new bridge, and obviously, that bridge is much better. Than the existed than the bridge that uh, led to the collapse. So, the last thing any of these um, workers want to do is get anything wrong um, on the Erie Canal, because you know they've spent so many years surveying, along with uh, debating on whether or not the canal itself should be built. So, if they want to make this a, a, a true reality, if they really want to ensure that it's going to be a success, then they've got they can't get it wrong. Because uh, there's no going backwards. So, given uh, from where I left off the previous night, we did mention about how the canal has already seen um, work being done. Given that there was a 15-mile, uh, at least a 15-mile stretch from Utica to Rome. But we're going to start now with the year 1817. Of course, that's also the same year that the canal itself um, gets uh, first constructed. So... Our leadoff bonus question is the following. How can 1817 be best described? Well, I know for one, uh, James Monroe is um, our fifth president. 
And I do know that his presidency uh, will be marked as one that's, um, or I should say labeled as the following, the era of good feelings. I've mentioned that quite a bit, but uh, one would ask, why is it the era of good feelings? Well, it, it will be considered the era of good feelings because um, there will be no war. Americans will start feeling better about themselves because the War of 1812 really um, really uh, changed Amer how Americans um, viewed their country in terms of safety. Many felt that James Madison had um, literally sold the country out because he had... Um, he, for one, did not believe in the presence of a standing army, but two, he allowed his political ideologies over standing armies dictate his uh, policy decisions that ultimately allowed the British to easily uh, take hold of our nation's capital, even though it was a wilderness, but still an open wilderness that was left vulnerable to where uh, the capital building, the White House, and other key government buildings, with the exception of the Patton Building, were burned. And believe it or not, folks, uh, even after all those buildings were burnt, Congress met in the Patent Building. But of course, we also have to remember, too, that Congress was not the same size like we know that it is today. So for James Monroe, obviously his presidency, uh, it, it just won't happen overnight that it will become the era of good feelings. But Monroe is a big fan of internal improvements. He's already admitted that he's all for an Erie Canal, as I've probably mentioned from early on. But that is just the start of many good things to come. So, as for how 1817 can be best described, uh, for one, uh, the year itself was considered remarkable, considering that the Erie Canal construction finally got underway after many years of constant uncertainty. And as I had mentioned that earlier about how there was con there was debate after debate, commission studies, survey studies, then. You have a, a shipping company, let alone, I should say, an American shipping company called the Black Ball Line. It would begin, it would begin running transatlantic ocean liners from Liverpool, which is north of London, I should say Liverpool, England, which is in the British Midlands section to New York City, being the uh, chief hub U.S. port. So in the aftermath of uh, the War of 1812... The U.S. economy has rebounded, but yet at the same time, it doesn't yield potential for long-term progress. You know, we all like to believe when an, when an economy rebounds, that means that there will be signs for long-term success. We all would like to believe that, but even the economy itself, or let alone the state of a nation's economy, can be very unpredictable. So... Prior to the War of 1812 and after, the U.S. government is lacking a national currency system. As a matter of fact, it's not until around the time that the United States Civil War breaks out that there will be a national currency system. So therefore, if we don't have a national currency system, what kind, What do we have any money? Well, sure, but the only money in system is printed paper notes. Yeah, printed paper is interesting because um, even um, in colonial day times, I'm reminded of this when my wife, when my wife and I go to Williamsburg. 
you know, it's one thing to have had paper money with you. It might be worth something one day, meaning the present day, but come tomorrow, it's not going to hold the same value. So we must remember, too, that all 13 colonies are basically printing their own uh, paper money. There is no uniform, one set standard protocol um, money that's being distributed. So if you live in North Carolina, for example, and you come into Virginia and you're bringing, bringing in North Carolina money, it's not going to have any value. For one, you're not in North Carolina, and two, Virginia has its own set of rules. So was the federal government issuing the printed paper notes? No, they were issued by individual banks. However, there was an alternative uh, form of money, but it was very limited. It's called specie, or let alone gold. And in some cases, you could say silver, too. Now, let me ask you guys this question. Which holds more value, having specie being gold or silver versus, or um, paper notes? Well, I think the answer is pretty easy is an easy one. Uh, specie has more value. Now, even in colonial days, if you owned or if you had coins that were referred to as uh, millets or Spanish millet dollars, those were hard dollar, hard um, silver dollar coins, and you could um, cut them or have them be cut into eighths. So if your coin has eight pieces, you, you know, you can retain... If you buy something that, and you give the um, the uh, vendor, or not so much the vendor, but say the silversmith, one eighth of your coin, that means you still keep, you still have retained the other seven eighths of that coin. So, in other words, you're not using up all of your hard currency at one time. Now, um, you know, if you need, say, if you need some refurbishing done on a fine piece of silver you can still retain uh, the value of the coin by, once again, using one-eighth of it. So, obviously, when you have a limited supply of specie in gold and silver, the specie is going to have far more value. But the problem, though, is that not everybody can get their hands on the specie. If you're wealthy or upper-middle class, and in some instances middle class in general, you probably will have a better chance at getting your hands on uh, specie versus uh, someone who's in the lower class or just down at the very bottom of the, um, what do you call it, of the uh, social, um, structural uh, ranking of society. So a limited supply of specie basically means that large banknote amounts <clears throat> cannot be converted into gold or silver. <clears throat> so yes, you could have up to, say, half a dozen of um, bank notes, or let alone paper notes, but you can't just go to the bank and, and cash it in. If the bank doesn't have the specie, then you're stuck with the paper notes, and your paper notes will still retain um, a less lesser amount of value compared to the actual specie itself. Well, here's a question for you all. Don't banks need money on their end to supply customers with with given customers have paper money? So in other words, banks need money on their end to supply customers with, with given customers have the paper money and notes. Yes, because there would be no true way for banks themselves 
to institute lines of credit. Think about it. It's one thing to have for you as an individual to have paper money, but if the banks don't have any of their have money on their end to provide you with, then how can you be set up for any line of credit or let alone a form of um, have an account to where you could be allotted X amount of money to spend um, that kind of thing. So the bottom line is the banks and uh, regular people or just everyday people, they need to both be on the same end in terms of uh, the banks being able to institute the money, that is to come up with the money and also be able to uh, supply the customers with the equal amount of money. So this way, there's no what you call overinflation of money where you're pr printing out more money, but yet you don't have enough customers who can um, afford to um, who can even afford to have access to the money itself. Now I'm not in, I'm not a um, an economics major, and I'm not, um, but I'm just providing you the best 101 um, explanation behind um, this part of the uh, podcast episode. Now, what's important about 1816, going a year backward, is that um, backwards is that Congress establishes the Second Bank of the United States, and that becomes the primary uh, depository for the federal government, where tax payments arrive. So, so think about this, folks. We don't have an IRS at the time. There's no internal revenue system or service. So, where are taxes going to go? Uh, they're going to go to this bank called the Second Bank of the United States. You know, I hate to say this, the second bank of the United States was not any better than its predecessor being the first. How so? Well, like the first bank of the United States, the second bank also spiraled out of control to where the U.S. economy went busted. You know, Thomas Jefferson was not a big fan of banks. I think that probably makes a lot of sense because he believed in the laissez-faire um, free market uh, system that meant less uh, regulations, um, what do you call it, less government intrusion, whereas, you know, his um, enemy, Alexander Hamilton, uh, being um, really, which he might as well have been his own version of what we call a Federal Reserve Chairman for his time. Yes, he was Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary to George Washington. But um, Jefferson, though, saw banks as uh, institutions that control too much power. He saw them as uh, private institutions that only catered to the uh, wealthy and the elite. Uh, he didn't see banks as being friendly to farmers. Well, I think he'd be happy to know if he were alive today that banks actually do uh, help farmers. They help people from all walks of life. So just here's a question for you all. Despite New York State's decline in revenue from real and personal property as well as import earnings did progress along the Erie Canal man manage to stay afloat. Believe it or not, it does. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, how is that possible when the economy in general is, uh, is uh, basically taking a bad nosedive in, for the rest of the nation? Well, the canal project itself was one of the few bright spots where jobs were actually growing versus diminishing. In 1820, canal commissioners were setting up contracts with prices 30 to 40, 30 to 40 percent below um, the average price between 1817 and 1819. It seems like uh, 
those who are running the canal project actually know how to manage their money right. But then again, all of the power behind the canal project is not placed in the hands of a few. As I had mentioned from the previous podcast, that the commissioners were smart enough to actually institute a comptroller, uh, the Treasury Secretary, uh, New York State's uh, Secretary of State um, leader. Um, basically, they developed a, a chain command of who would take charge with the finances. And that's smart because you want to have people who bring expertise to an area. You don't want to ha- put the power in someone's hands who doesn't have broad expertise in an area when it comes to, say, managing the finances or let alone the comptroller part. Now, I should say that due to the successful financial results in paying back the money with less interest charged, canal paper notes became the new mecca for people outside wealthier, outside the wealthy tier status ranking. How all of a sudden do you come up with canal notes? Well, hey, I mean, this project isn't confined to just one group of um, people. The fact that um, the commissioners were smart enough to give um, power to people in localities, all, all the localities in New York State that will benefit from the Erie Canal, for one, those people know their terrain, and two, they know how to mobilize in terms of recruiting um, people in the greater community to come out and work. So this is a great example of an early version of what would be called the Works Progress Administration that was uh, put into play around the time of the Great Depression years later. But over time, I will point out, and I'll mention here, that um, once the, um, once the uh, expansion of um, progress was being done with the canal, people from above, that is from higher ranks in society, eventually um, joined along and uh, taking part in owning, um, not stock, but owning a fair, and, but having sums of money uh, tied into the project. So by October of 1820, construction work on the Erie Canal's midsection is completed. And I'll mention some more about this here in a little bit, but what's important about the um, midsection's completion is that by, is that, by 1821, there are about 9,000 minute work on the canal project. So I could see how the more people you have have working on this, that yes, canal paper notes will be popular. Not just popular, but they'll have meaning for those who are taking part of the project, given that they're lo- uh, locals, they represent their localities or uh, their towns, but they know that all the ins and outs. So all interest payments on earlier loans taken by small investors were met on time. So it's, you know, we get this assumption when someone loans us money, that is from the bank, that, that we, we have to pay it all off at once. No, um, you know, we have what are called installment plans on how to pay a loan off over time. Now, there was a $200,000 loan that was um, issued in 1818, and it had 69 subscribers. However, 51 of those subscribers were investing in $2,000 or less, and more than half of the 51 invested less than $1,000. 
So I think it's fair to say that these investors, they obviously, for one, thought long and hard about what they were doing, but two, they didn't need to, um, what do you call it, blow it all or spend it all like there was no tomorrow. In other words, they um, they knew, they, they how do you say it, they basically took a look at what they had financial-wise and decided, hey, this is what we can afford to do, what we can't afford to do, but this is also what we can afford to uh, spend and, and be able to pay it off at a reasonable time. Canal Investments, as I said earlier, and we're going to find out here in a moment, Canal Investments were not confined to one sector of society. By 1821, there becomes a greater emergence of well-to-do businessmen who begin invest investing in the Erie Canal, most notably a fellow named John Jacob Astor, whom owned $213,000 in canal loans. Well, I will say this, the Astors are a very well-to-do family, and over time there will be um, a fellow by the name of John Jacob Astor IV who um, boards the Titanic, that ship that was deemed unsinkable. Um, he, at that time, not to get ahead of the game, but of course when I think of Astor, I think of John Jacob Astor IV, but I also think of a hotel that... Um, was very famous in its day, and it is still around, called the Waldorf Astoria. Um, the families were the Waldorfs and the Astors. And what do you know, uh, when my wife and I vacationed in the Thousand Islands of New York State last summer up in the northern part of the state, that region, uh, as I've probably mentioned before, was the first uh, region that um, that was the uh, true vacation getaway destination for the rich and famous in the post-Civil War era. But in the years after the Civil War, a fellow by the name of George Bolt, and we saw a castle in New York State in the Thousand Islands called Bolt Castle, named after the Bolt family. Turns out that George Bolt was ran the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and he helped broker a compromise that basically kept the, the Waldorfs and the Astor families together. So if it hadn't been for Mr. Bolt, I think it's fair to say that the Waldorf Astoria Hotel might not even be in existence today. So in 1822, uh, the first major purchases of canal paper um, by English investors took place. And that's important because uh, foreign nations, most notably England, did um, invest in the Erie Canal and of course, it's safe. To, it, it makes practical sense because, after all, folks, you know, foreign countries, most notably England and France, for example, are coming um, westward, bringing their ships westward into the Atlantic Ocean, where their goods will be uh, transported further inland to reach markets that had never been thought of beforehand. So. The commissioners, which I mentioned from the previous podcast, they established what was called the um, Erie Canal Fund. Well, the fund itself um, borrowed just under $2 million from 1822 to 1824, which completed all financial needs. And in the end, New York State paid down all debts without any federal government assistance. I find that amazing. You know, there's nothing wrong with asking the federal government for money to help you out, but based off of what I've mentioned from previous podcasts, you know, sometimes the federal government 
cannot always be relied upon even in, when there's not a time of war or even in a time of uncertainty. And political ideologies often clash sectional interests like we're seeing right now at the start of the 19th century where the lines between North and South are gradually um, showing their, um, what do you call it, fractiousness or their tensions. And of course, New York State got snubbed you know, by Jefferson and by Madison because they never really specified where the money would go for internal improvements. They said that internal improvements were needed, but it was never truly specified. So after all these years of going before Congress and, and stating what needed to be done and nothing ever got done, that's why New York State was smart enough to just go forward and do this project on a state-level basis, and not that there were hurdles there, but the bottom line is, had they, had they relied on the government for funding, they probably would have gotten money, but is it safe to say they would have gotten the whole money that they requested? Probably not. And during the time of war, being in the War of 1812, funding would have stopped, and it would have made so practical sense, because it's not so much that the war is being fought, our government by then has gone from a record surplus to a record deficit. So that's why New York State escaped uh, unharmed even during this uh, financial panic of 1819 because the state itself found ways to um, raise the money to build the canal, but two, they also found ways to be able to repay the loans and the um debt amount or to repay the interest on the debt back without having to um without having to um rely on outside sources like the federal government to bail them out so that like that old saying right people at the right time the right plans when all that happens you can you pretty much are assured that um that you have pretty much modified everything uh, there is possible that would uh, prevent a situation from getting out of control. Now, as mentioned earlier, uh, the Erie Canal's middle section was completed, got completed before 1820 came to an end. The middle section would be between um, Seneca Falls from the western end going into Rome and as far east as Utica. Now, the middle section um, believe it or not, was flat terrain the whole way without any locks. And as we all know, locks are the devices used for lowering and raising the levels, uh, the water levels. But um, the uh, transportation was for shipping and travel purposes as it stretched over 90 miles. So the midsection mid success enhanced canal advocates to encourage the remaining construction of the canal itself to be completed without further delays. So by late 1820, work crews begin um, constructing uh, the section from Utica to Albany, which includes the terminus, or what's called the end point of the canal on the Hudson River. High levels of economic development had ensued or let alone ensued after each stretch of the canal had been completed. Albany, being uh, New York State's uh, capital, Albany was building a harbor facility to equip large numbers of storehouses. 
So in other words, they had wharves on their uh, dock front that would store goods that e that would be ready to come in, or actually goods that had, say, just arrived, and they would store them there until further notice, along with goods that would be stored that would be getting ready to be exported out. So as 1821 comes to an end, navigation on the eastern section opens to where passageway of 24 miles links Utica to Little Falls. Bonus question here. Given the canal's success by 1821, from a construction and financial perspective, money not only was coming in, but it was also going out. You know, you got to make sure money goes in and out both ways. You can't be, um, you can't be, what do you call it, raking money to where you're bringing it in, but you have nothing to show for it by, if you don't put any money out, then what do you have to show for something? You, you don't. So, what did the canal itself collect toll-wise for revenue purposes? Well, it's the following. Salt, gypsum, grains, timber, bricks, to passenger boats charging five cents per mile. Five cents per mile was a lot of money back then. But hey, you've got to hand it to these people. They're, they're very uh, creative in, in how you go about collecting revenue on a variety of different things. Did canal work east of Utica pose challenges? Yes, it did. For starters, the land dropped by 105 feet over some eight miles, which required 13 consecutive locks. Secondly, the 86-mile stretch from Little Falls to the Hudson River had geological challenges ranging from multiple different structures along rivers the banks um, had many steep slopes leading down to the river. The landscape at Little Falls was daunting enough to where uh, steep banks rose as high as 500 feet above the Hudson River's level. I would say that that is a hard challenge onto itself. But in the end... In November of 1821, engineers filled the canal section with water from Little Falls to Schenectady, which is on the outskirts of Albany, ranging 62 miles with no leaks or breakdowns in the canal walls. So it's not just constructing the body, how the body of water is going to go, folks. It's also the canal walls. How will those walls hold up, and how resistant will they be? That's the big thing, because if the walls aren't resistant, then good luck on a, on a boat's uh, stability just to flow through the um, navigable uh, water route uh, smoothly without anything un unexpected coming that would put uh, the, um, the goods, or, and let alone the people on the boat, at danger. So... Um, with the 13 locks that were put in and the drop of 90 feet that would be needed from Little Falls and Schenectady. So that all prevailed. And close to one-third of the Erie Canal's 83 total locks encompassed a 16-mile stretch from Schenectady to Albany, being 27 locks. That is a lot right there. 
Engineers devised an aqueduct system flowing north and south, being a total of two aqueducts. The 27 locks from Schenectady to Albany were open day and night, but traffic would be confined to just heavy cargo. This bonus, bonus question right here. Would there be hurdles to face in the western section of the Erie Canal just like they were in the eastern front? Yes. Most notably between the Genesee River and Rochester, given that river runs south to north all the way to the Niagara Escarpment, or a.k.a. an escarpment meaning various separate areas of land at different heights or a long steep slope. And another question to back up what I just said a second, what I mentioned a second ago. Another bonus question here. Uh, what project in Rochester would become the largest on the Erie Canal? That would be the Genesee River Aqueduct. And this, um, this um, aqueduct began construction in 1821. The Genesee would be so wide that the aqueduct itself was more than three city blocks in length. And it included nine Roman-style stone arches, each 50 feet across with one smaller arch at each end. So I think it is very fair to say that the uh, Genesee River Aqueduct is something that would be the equivalent of what was um, in um, existence during the heyday of the um, Roman Empire. After all, there are some uh, places in New York State named after um, named after ancient Greece and, uh, Ro and ancient Rome civilization. There is a place in New York State north of Syracuse known as Cincinnatus, named after that famous Roman emperor um, whose name was Cincinnatus, who was pretty much like the equivalent of a George Washington, or in other words, he was like the George Washington of his time. And, and, and when the Revolutionary War officially ended, there would be a famous society that still is in existence today, the Society of the Cincinnati. And of course, Cincinnati, Ohio is named after Cincinnatus. You also have a, a town outside of Syracuse that I've mentioned many of times being Rome, New York. The Genesee Aqueduct finally... Many of y'all are wondering, did this aqueduct get completed? Well, sure it did. However, it was 11 months behind schedule. It was finally completed in September of 1823. It was um, constructed, but at a cost of over $83,000 per original uh, cost estimates. Now, the Genesee River, um, what made the Genesee River so valuable was that the area was surrounded by an abundance of um, mill stations. What I mean by mill stations is that um, facilities where um, mills would grind um, would grind ingredients to say make flour, and what do you know? The mill stations along the Genesee R River would in fact produce mass quantities of flour. Matter of fact, the first ten days that the um, Genesee Aqueduct was in operation, about ten thousand flour barrels departed eastward from Rochester. The first year of service, 
the um, the canal authorities at Rochester de determined that just a, that close to ten thousand dollars in toll revenue collected alone, all by the means of transporting flour, and of course other goods, but most notably flour. Now, by in October of 1823, the Erie Canal opened was opened to uninterrupted un un travel. If I could get that out, that would be great. I think I had a little bit of a tongue twister there. But the Erie Canal opened to uninterrupted travel from Genesee River to Albany. That's 250 miles right there. That is um, a lot of uh, progress there, folks, onto itself. Um, think about it. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the state of New York does not need to rely on um, any kind of uh, federal government assistance. They've come up with their own plan. They are repaying um, the, uh, the debts off in a timely manner. It is truly a great work of, um, of which great teamwork at its best. That's not to say that they are still, there could still be differences, but the bottom line is at the end of the day, everybody has forged together and is making a difference in advancing uh, the cause of transportation, not just in New York State, but how it will link to uh, westward states like Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, and all the way to Illinois. We've basically taken some huge steps, folks. You know, it, it was costing a buttload of money, you know, to transport goods by land. Now by water, as Robert Fulton said um, from a previous podcasts back, that... Um, with all the savings on the water, the cost alone for, to haul like, you know, 25 uh, tons of cargo, and we know 2,000 pounds is the equivalent to um, a ton, um, so that's 50,000 pounds. So you think about it, all kinds of cargo being shipped by water, whereas shoot on land, you know, you'd be lucky if you got between 4,000 and 6,000 uh uh, tons of uh, cargo, which means that you're only getting at best about, um, you know, at best maybe just over 3,000 um, pounds worth of um, of goods by land. So it is a huge step in the right direction to have uninterrupted travel from the Genesee River to Albany being 250 miles. But you know what? The work is far from being done. And... Um, to wrap up this uh, podcast session, let's um, think about the following right here. The opening of the Hudson River now made it clear for two-way water transportation between the Atlantic Ocean and Rochester being a span of 375 miles. Now remember folks, from New York City to Albany along the Hudson is about 150 miles. Now, our final bonus question for tonight is the following. What still remained as a roadblock hurdle for complete canal construction? How about that canal section that runs from Rochester to Lake Erie? Where would the canal have to go over in order to make it all the way to Lake Erie? How about the region known as Niagara and Buffalo? and the areas surrounding uh, the outskirts of Buffalo and Niagara, most notably like Lockport. That's going to be the biggest 
Well, the Genesee River was a challenge onto itself, but I have a very, very strong feeling that going uh, through the Niagara Escarpment is going to be even more daunting because no route has yet been determined as to how um, as to how uh, boats will move downward along with going uphill. And then questions will arise over how a canal alone can navigate that large Niagara escarpment, simply in part because it was blocking direct access from the east, being Rochester to the west, Lake Erie. Well, we have finished uh, part three of the creation. Uh, in our next podcast, we will be discussing part four, being the stupendous path. I will tell you this much, folks. We're not far from being done, but we have covered a lot of ground. Uh, as a matter of fact, I might as well just tell you now, um, after part four, we will have one more part, being part five. But the reason why I tell you this now is because uh, we're 60% of the way through on this um, on this um, adventure in terms of not just learning about the Erie Canal, but how it became such a phenomenal engineering marvel for its time. There's a reason why it's called Wedding of the Waters. How so? Because you're linking the Atlantic Ocean to not just the Erie Canal, but you're linking the ocean that is from the uh, port area of New York City all the way into um, the, uh, what do you call it, all the way into the internal mainland of New York State to where goods will move east to west and um, it will cut down, as I mentioned earlier, it's already proven to cut down on um, costs for transportation. Our national security will be um, better enhanced, but our future will be even better as a result of immigrants being able to settle in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and eventually Michigan um, to where goods will move into places where they had not been before, but that we will also know that our boundaries will be better protected. So, Thank you again for letting me uh, be on the air with you all, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care and, and stay safe.